This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. We are thrilled to be back with you for season two. Last season, we talked with leading practitioners about the policy, data, and racial equity practices they are using to affect change and how they and their partners are working together. This season, we will continue this conversation and explore how folks are working to make changes in states and communities across the country that center equity in the design of pathways systems through the lens of their relationships with others. It is my great pleasure to welcome two of our fellow travelers and equity warriors in this work, and from whom I get so energized to talk and learn with. Greetings, I'm Natasha Harrison, President and CEO of Community Build Ventures. Hello, I'm Joshua Johnson. I am a director at JFF, and I'm leading the National Innovation Hub for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility in Registered Apprenticeship. Natasha, Joshua, I am so happy we get to have this conversation today. We opened our last season by talking about how racism shows up in personal interactions and institutional practices, and our season one guests explored key aspects of their work that seeks to disrupt this reality. Zooming out, our community also recognizes that racism is baked into our education and career systems writ large. So let's uh, set the table together. I'd like you to help shape an understanding of what addressing inequity and racism at a systems level means and looks like, especially in the work that you do. What does it mean for a system to perpetuate inequity and what might equity in that system actually look like? Natasha, I would love for you to get us started. You've worked deeply in Georgia and with the United Way of Greater Atlanta, as well as across the country. Can you talk with us a little bit about this big idea we're wrestling with? Absolutely. Thank you so much for this question. How we center racial equity at Community Build Ventures, we always talk about pace and space. And so we always think about while there is an urgency of now, it's very present. As a Black Southern woman, I definitely feel it in my body. I have experienced it. But what happens in the pursuit of racial equity We're seeing a lot of collateral damage, harmful and violent practices internally in pursuit of racial equity. And that makes our external impact not uh, sustainable. We always start with talking about brave space building and how do we create a space that is something different in the way that we're currently working now to ensure that people show up authentically to ensure that we're creating a pace that's not towards overworking and burnout and creating a space in which we can be authentic, we can show vulnerability, and we can be open and it be a valuable characteristic in this work. Mm. Thank you for that. Joshua, what about you riffing off of Natasha or even coming in from another perspective? What does this mean and look like from your own work at state levels, from a national perspective? What are you seeing 
around the issue we're trying to address here around interrupting the perpetuation of inequity at the systems level. Yeah, so it's interesting. As Natasha talked about pace and space, the first thing that I think about there is intentionality. You know, we've seen definitely after the horrific murder of George Floyd, you know, we saw a lot of employers or we saw a lot of brands. We saw a lot of uh, everyone all of a sudden becoming uh, Black champions, right? Organizations really started to get intentional or tried to be intentional with including the Black voice in everything that we've done or that's been done. And I, and I love how, Natasha, when you said that pace and space, like, some of that intentionality has created issues because it's created distrust because now it's, is this a PR move or is there, are you really caring about the black voice? Do you really care about what we feel and what we say? And then in the work that I do working with employers in creating inclusive registered apprenticeship programs, that has been one of the very important areas that we address in our work is it's about being intentional. And it's not about just doing it because it seems good and it it looks good. It's about being very intentional and including that apprentice voice in that. The most interesting part of that is the, the Black apprentice voice is missing from those conversations. And we see that historically across the country. For me, you know, as we think about how do we engage and how do we remove those inequities at that systemic level, it's being intentional not just you're a big company and you're hiring a bunch of black or brown workers into your entry-level positions. It's being intentional and you're hiring those black and brown workers in and showing them a pathway on how they can make it to the C-suite or how they can own their own business. You've both started to talk about two ideas I really want to chip away at in here today and introducing this idea of pace and space. I, I love that intentionality, this piece around voice I want to circle around. And I think it gets to the heart of, of what we call in, in our community practice here about what is the work, right? And how do we get beyond the brand and bring that intentionality into the foreground? And I see this as generational work. It's immediate work. It's urgent work. And it also requires practice, right? It is practice. You know, I know the the listeners can't see it, but I saw Natasha, you you just uh, smiled there for a second. And so uh, to turn it back to you, you know, you talked really briefly about practice of building brave spaces in our community's work. Can you say a little bit more about what that work is? How do we create them? Why should we care? And how does it help us to do the work of systems level change? I just feel the weight um, and also feeling what Joshua just said around intentionality I think the first thing that I center on is that we're over 400 years in this and we're trying to shift. We're trying to dismantle, disrupt and go towards a just liberated free society. Right. And so that means that we have to build new muscles around stamina, around agility, around strength and we have to be committed to something different and know that this is an ultra marathon. This is not, as Joshua pointed out, a quick statement or quick blurb that seems fashionable related to more clicks or more buys, right? And so if we're really committed to this, we center on four key skills that we think are very important in moving towards racial equity. And that is noticing Sensing an energetic shift, feeling when something doesn't feel aligned, 
holding space, being able to acknowledge others' feelings while holding your own, strengthening curiosity. And that's really about having time for research, inquiry, and reflection, and then strengthening accountability and accountability that really is about reflection, self-reflection, apology, repair, and change behavior. And so if we center these as ongoing practices as human beings in a work environment, we have to create a space that allows that to happen. The space to create that to happen is building brave spaces. So we have a protocol, a framework called brave space building. And what that centers on is really a supportive container to assist all community members, really developing a connection with each other, the work ahead and, you know, and ourselves and themselves in that community. And we want people to really be able to unmask and show up authentically. And that means it has to be a psychologically safe space. And so those elements are feelings, gratitude and intentions. We always start with that. The next three elements is community agreements, assumptions, and shared language. And so we found by using brave space building, sometimes there's tears, (laughs) sometimes there's laughter, but we're able to really activate those four skills that really disrupts the current space and pace in the way that we work now. And that's what we should be in the business of doing if we want to sustain this work. And Natasha, I've seen that happen within our community of practice and the introduction of that, what I've seen it do is, is ask us to slow down for a minute and center ourselves to be in this space together. It centers our humanity first so that we can then actually engage in the work that we need to take on. Yeah, absolutely. What we're learning within Community Build Ventures, that somatic practices, really Mm -hmm. getting you present. A lot of times the way that we approach work is very similar to, hey, I'm driving and you don't know how you got to the store. You knew you were going to the store, but somehow your body got you there safely, but your mind wasn't there. (laughs) Your body was. What we are trying to help people do is we want people to be fully present as human beings in this work. We want your head to be connected to your body. (laughs) and be fully present of what's happening, what's going on, and be honest because that's where the work is. Otherwise, we're not going to heal and we're going to continue to perpetuate the same things over and over and over. Yeah. And I would love to to bring this over to Joshua for a second. So think about the work that you lead around diversity, equity, inclusion in our apprenticeship system. Some people might look at that work and experience that work as highly technical, right? There's a lot of technical components. You need to have a mechanical grip on how do we build this system. But that work explicitly names uh, the need to redesign these systems in ways that center those priorities. If we really want to deliver on the promise Uh, of what apprenticeship was designed to do. And so can you take these ideas around brave space building and talk about how you see these currently playing out in the reimagining of the apprenticeship system, for instance, or the role that they could or should play in actually advancing a vision for a reimagined way of, of connecting young people and young adults to work in really intentional and meaningful ways? I live in Germantown, Wisconsin, which is a predominantly white city. And my kids are, you know, part of the 20% minority students that attend the school district here. And 
when we think about brave spaces, I think about the conversations I've had with them where there is no culture of belonging and how, you know, a brave space, true culture of belonging supports that brave space because it's saying no matter what you say, we're not going to judge you on it. We want you to feel comfortable. We want you to be able to have a voice. So I'll tie that in. And I had to give a little clarity there because it really does tie into talking about changing the system of apprenticeship and the, the way it's built on race, on equity, just in general. So when we think about the layers that have to be peeled back, uh, just in the apprenticeship, just thinking about the apprenticeship in general, I think back to some work I did here in the state. We saw the disparity uh, between black and brown apprentices getting engaged with the uh, apprenticeship system here in the state of Wisconsin. You know, I looked at the employers and asked the employers, like, where are you recruiting your talent from? And there were a couple of things that came up, actually, that were really interesting. It gets down to the system of it, which is there's two, I always use this example, there's like these two pools of individuals. There's one pool where the employers recruit from on a daily basis, right? That pool is full of white men and at times white women. Then there's this other pool that has all black and brown folks, has all individuals who may have uh, some type of disability. They're in that pool. And the employers never go to that pool to recruit from because they go to the, the pool to recruit from that they're comfortable with, they're used to recruiting from. But what I found out is, as I had conversations with employers, employers wanted to recruit from those other pools, but they didn't know how to access those other pools. So then that led me like, okay, well, we can make this easy, right? This is easy. We'll just, we'll create some information here. And when we talk about apprenticeship, Black and brown folks and individuals with disabilities don't even know about the opportunities in apprenticeship because they've never been exposed to them. But what I came to was I can't hold these employers responsible to hire diverse candidates until I can get diverse candidates into that pool. And now I can look at the employers and say, hey, it's time you need to be recruiting and you need to be hiring individuals who are diverse. So one of the things we did here was like this huge campaign when I was the state director of putting billboards. I have billboards in the hood, right? And I got questioned on it. They're like, why are you putting billboards about apprenticeship? Why are you focusing, you know, in the, the most impoverished areas in our city? And I said, because at the end of the day, it's about planting a seed. And once we can plant a seed, we can start to change a system. I can't change a system at the top without the bottom understanding what's going on or being exposed to the opportunities that are there, whether it's in construction, manufacturing, IT, healthcare. We're seeing the demographics constantly change and we're looking for those employers and we're celebrating those employers who are making it a safe space, who are making it a brave space where individuals can come in and, and voice their opinion and let it be known, you know, what they're experiencing and how the employer can make it better. Wish the audience could see my reaction as Joshua was talking. I was just staffing my fingers and just uh, and applauding a lot of what he was saying especially around the culture of belonging. Any human growth and development 101 class will say some of the basic human needs is safety and structure, belonging and membership. In the work that I've done in youth development, those are the main two things that we really focused on, on looking at youth needs from those perspectives. And so how do we create that? And so that means we got to slow down. That means we have to be in the business of what you said, Cal, of practicing 
being a human being, literally, because our work environments are really the opposite of environments for humans. It really is, right? You know, vulnerability, showing your emotions <laughs> can be punitive in a lot of our working environments. And so um, so it's just really good to hear Joshua saying that with his kids, he's hearing uh, a culture of belonging and creating that space for that because that's what the work is about. And I think sometimes too, to be able to express that one is is experiencing it or seeking it, but also to bring forward the voice and the the curiosity. Increasingly, I'm observing young people have in words to describe this thing that they are seeking. And so I think about the work that we're trying to do, right? And I think that it's about how do we help create those conditions so that young people have the tools to seek these things and to actually support the adults in the system to partner with them to create these, right? So we have we have lots of buzzwords in the education and, and workforce development field. We talk a lot about co-designing, uh, which is totally right. We talk a lot about creation. Well, maybe we don't talk enough about it, but we we should be talking about creation versus extraction and participatory research and and these uh, the spirit of collaboration rather than coordination. And I'm thinking back on on what you have both already put on the table here today. And maybe to boil it down, like it seems in some ways to come down to simply changing the ways in which we acknowledge and value and lift up each other's time and experience and expertise. And so you both have experience uh, from different levels of systems, working with different types of participants um, across them, having these conversations and creating opportunities in the conditions where co-design can really happen in the context of working with youth. Would love to hear you unpack that a little bit. Like, what are you observing? What are some experiences you've had helping people navigate that tough space of really getting to a place where they can listen and learn with and from one another to actually create something together? So racial equity in itself, right? It must center the lived experiences and voices of those that have are the most marginalized. And so... The success that I've seen is organizations that really have um, shifted power, like really thought about power and being vulnerable and being humble and honest enough in the work environment to say, I don't have the answers. But I believe the people that are experiencing this, they have the answers. And so it's really about self-determination, wielding our power in these institutions, building power as well. And so what I've seen is, first and foremost, youth are paid. Let me just be clear on that. Are paid designers and co-designers of programs. And they are also the marketers. They are also the spokespeople. I've also seen where organizations have paid youth advisory members to really shift the power, to center their voice. And they are accountable to that, right? And it becomes part of someone's performance (laughs) review of how they're actually using the voice and experiences of young people and not doing it alone. Like it becomes part of how I am evaluated within this environment because we believe that this is how we move the work effectively. But the caveat is, again, that takes more time. 
because we're not used to doing that. We say we want to do it, but we're not used to really shifting power in that way and being honest and saying, I'm not perfect. I don't know the answers, but I'm pretty sure the person that is experiencing this has some solutions, right? And we can help facilitate and support. But that that horizon takes more time. And there's no accountability structure that values that systematically, right? Like the metrics we have and use, and they're not wrong in and of themselves, but there's no metric to account for, you know, the process that people are going through that says something about its trajectory toward a reimagined type of system or something about how relationships are being built. And, you know, you talked about the power dynamics that exist all across these systems between between and among adults working at different levels of systems, among employers and educators, between youth and adults uh, working in these contexts, these are very real. And unless we name them and create the conditions to account for them in our work together, I do fear that we're not going to get as far as quickly as we could if, unless we do otherwise. Joshua, do you see this happening and playing out in the education and career space in terms of how young people are being welcomed into these conversations, their voices being elevated, um, these power dynamics being mitigated in their in the way that they participate and are welcomed to participate, in particular in apprenticeship, but in work-based learning even more broadly. To take it back to something Natasha said towards the beginning when she talked about the feelings, gratitude, and intentions. As I was sitting here listening to her really explain and talk about the power dynamics across the system and the lack of accountability. Like that just seems like we're in a, we're in a world right now, uh, definitely in a country that is not only is it a microwave society where we want things right now and it's been for a while, but it's this idea that if I admit I'm wrong, I relinquish any power I have. Or if I admit that something's wrong, I take away the authenticity of it or and it's like this this total lack of accountability or, or accepting that something happened, I think that really plays into folks really just not wanting to be real about what it is. In this generation, these kids aren't playing around. They're going to challenge the constructs of everything, like good, bad, and different. And they're going to say, I don't want to hear that it's been done like this forever. It needs to be different. And when we start to think about, you know, in the apprenticeship world, one of the biggest challenges that I've seen throughout my career uh, in the apprenticeship space is the average age of an apprentice is 28. And I think that's where the system in and of itself, like this even goes deeper than just a, a, a racial equity system. This is just about a system that tells every black and brown child the only way that you will be successful in life is to get a college degree. That's societal in general, but then in our black families, like that is the focus, right? In, in black families, we celebrate, like, if I didn't go to college, I celebrate that my child went to college. And we look at it that because that is our way in our mentality or, or, or our vision of how to break that construct of the system. But because that is embedded in those conversations and as we're growing or as we're being raised, when we talk about getting engaged in apprenticeship and having those black and brown voices in apprenticeship at a younger age, there's a challenge there. The work we're doing with our innovation hub work is 
really highlighting that apprentice voice and looking for those apprentices who've experienced issues, who've experienced success, who've experienced barriers to share their experience so that we can build upon it. Once again, you know, off the back of what you said, Kyle, not to demonize folks, but at the end of the day, like if we don't hear somebody experience, how can we get better? When it comes to racial equity, we don't take the time to see what we did wrong or what we said wrong and do it differently next time. We're more willing to go sit on the sideline and just say, we're just going to have to figure it out or they're just going to have to deal with it. Uh, and I think that's, that's where we have to get to the conversation. And the young folks are going to get us there. Yeah, I just want to add to that. Racial equity is pioneering work. Full stop. <laughs> right? Period. We've never experienced this. And we are trying to create a space for this, like really move towards racial equitable outcomes, right? And I've seen organizations realize some real impact in the work, but I also see under the hood, the damage that has happened to the people doing the work. So I'm seeing people burn out. I'm seeing people not be fully supported with the budgets that's needed to move racial equity work, <laughs> right, and tap out. And I'm seeing people not have real healthy boundaries also in this work, right? And so I think that's important for people to understand that the process, as you're thinking about and writing down, okay, what is our community process, right? when we come together so that people know this is something different, right? Like all of the things that you're doing, this recipe, and you're testing it out, you're feeling into it, that's part of the work. Race space building is part of the work because now that my staff now feels supported, now feels that, okay, this is sustainable and I'm building stamina to honestly go through the storm when racial equity is no longer the T, is no longer the thing, um, is no longer that statement and we're working towards it, right? Um, we're seeing a wave of DEI folks getting laid off, just not even three years. And so I want us to also be invested in the process. The outcomes are great. You have X amount of young people here you have them talking differently about those things. Those are beautiful outcomes, but we need to sustain the work. This is not just, as Joshua said, a microwave. <laughs> like we can just turn this out in one minute. This is a lifetime to really disrupt and dismantle 400 years of conditioning policies and practices. And if I could just piggyback on that, like being Black is tiring. I'm just going to be honest. Like you, it, it's, it's exhausting. And I don't say that in a way of like, of looking for pity. Let's just think about this. We're still celebrating the first black and brown anything in so many different areas. That's exhausting. So when we talk about racial equity and the work that it takes to create racial equity, Natasha, I echo your sentiments. There's so much burnout because it's, we, we have this opportunity to create change now and we're ready to be all in because in some way, we really believe that in our lifetime, we're going to see that difference. 
So we go all in as hard as we can. And there's not a safe space for us that's waiting for us when we just have to sit down. And I see so many of my friends that are so tied in, much more even than me, into racial equity work, gender equity work. And it's just so, it's so exhausting. So we have to call that out. It's tough. It's really tough. Which is why we have to build the community in the workplace. So we have to really do something different again around the, the pace and the space in order to not only realize racial equity, but sustain it within your work environment. What does that look like? You know, the two of you just laid no less than 20 or 30 small gifts for anybody listening to this conversation to pick up as we think about an organization who is committed to facilitating these conversations in their community or stakeholders in education or workforce system organizations who are needing and ready to get curious. And I'm just continually reminded through both of those sort of final remarks about what was framed at the beginning, right? This is work and it requires practice and it requires intentionality. Natasha, Joshua, thank you for your time here today, for your voice, for your practice, uh, for your excellence. Uh, It has been a real pleasure uh, having you join us today and for setting the table for our next suite of episodes in this podcast. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much. Definitely. I'm grateful as well. We talked a lot about intentionality when we kicked off season one. Keeping those same sentiments in the foreground this season, the dimension of intentionality that I appreciated Natasha and Joshua surfacing was around the notions of creating space and a form of strength training critical in racial equity practice. As Natasha put it, racial equity work is pioneering work. And as we push ourselves, our organizations, and our systems to confront centuries of persisting inequity, we need to develop new muscles to give us the stamina, agility, and strength for the work in front of us. Be sure to check out the show notes for materials referenced by Natasha and Joshua to access key resources for putting these ideas into practice. We hope they're helpful in your own work and thinking. This season, we will continue this conversation around building strength in our practice, creating the conditions for change, and staying the course in pursuit of equitable education and career pathways systems. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And tune in for our next episode. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF, signing off until next time.